our speaker for this uh, session is Eric Lyons. Uh, and Eric uh, it may be a name that you have heard, and that is because of uh, the incredible work that he has done with Apologetics Press, uh, especially with uh, all of the other men at Apologetics Press as well. Uh, he has filled a gap, and uh, AP in general, they have filled a gap that is unbelievably needed, not only in the Brotherhood, but just in the religious world, uh, to defend the faith, to show that there is good evidence for the things that we believe in. And uh, he has served as both a minister and, uh, of course, again, with Apologetics Press for uh, quite a long time. Uh, he's a popular speaker at youth forums and certainly many other places. And we are very excited to have Eric with us to speak at this hour uh, about a topic that obviously is one that uh, you'll go to school and you may have teachers telling you something contrary to what is uh, the truth. And so we are excited to see what he has for us this uh, afternoon. Brother, come preach word to us. When I was uh, probably about 12 years old and people asked me what I wanted to do when I, when I would grow up, I said, I just thought it sounded like the funnest job in the world. I said, I want to be an athletic director on a cruise ship. That's just what I said. Um, I thought, hey, I've never been on a cruise. I still haven't, but it sounds like a fun thing. And, you know, I like sports and activities and games, so I thought, well, you know, I never became an athletic director on a cruise ship. But would you believe that I picked peaches one summer? I mean, that was my job in Porter, Oklahoma. I picked peaches. One summer, which was one of the worst, I must say, I put on, uh, the, there were shutters that went on ventilation fans, and my job was to put on hinges on the individual little things that became part of the shutters, and I literally did the same movement like every five seconds, and eight hours, in, I mean, two hours into my day, I thought my day should be over with. Would you believe that one time I was a chauffeur? You know, I might be dressed a little bit like one. Would you believe that I, I was a chauffeur? Now, I have raised three kids, and I've chauffeured them around. But I chauffeured, would you believe, for this brilliant scientist who traveled all over the country delivering the same lecture on the foot. Now, he was a creation scientist, if you can believe this. And he was a biomechanical engineer. And he would talk to people not only about the flood, but also about um, laws of science, like the first law of thermodynamics. Did y'all get that? And the second law of thermodynamics, thermodynamics. I mean, I didn't even know what that meant. But I memorized his speeches. In fact, I told him one day, after about a hundred times taking him places, I said, listen, buddy, I think I can give that speech better than you can. <laughs> he said, well, let's try it. So I did. And I felt like, if you can believe this, that I delivered that speech better than that biomechanical engineer ever did. And then someone raised their hand and had a question. <laughs> <laughs> And you see, the biomechanical engineer and I had switched roles that day, and so he was the chauffeur and I was the scientist. And so I just said, listen, buddy, that answer is so simple, I'm going to let my chauffeur answer that question. <laughs> you know, there is a biomechanical engineer in here today. His name's Jeff Miller. He's written a book on this subject called uh, Flooded, and I would highly recommend that you get it. Now, on a much more serious note, not really, let me just say, if you are in need of any paper or pencil to take notes, I'm all out right now, but I'm sure somebody has some. And if you need an ARC, 
I know a guy. I know a guy. Can I get it? I didn't even get a smile. I had this little one down there. Okay, all right. If that one didn't work for you, I got it. Just test question. Are you all like pop quizzes? How many animals of each kind? Y'all ready for this? Y'all know? How many animals of each kind did Moses take on the ark? How many animals of each kind? Listen, my dad got me with this question when I was about 22 years old. The answer is? Well, it's a pretty good, it's a good try, but I, I would have probably said, you know, two or seven or some might say 14 of the clean kind. I think there were seven of the clean kind myself because they had to offer sacrifices. But Moses didn't take any. It was who? No. It was Noah. And last but not least, well, no, I got two more. Which animal? I, I probably wouldn't do this if I was in the auditorium, but since I'm in here with such a fun, lively group, just a couple more. It's too much fun not to. Which animal on the ark could not be trusted? The cheetah. <laughs> the cheetah. Now, the cheetah probably wasn't on the ark like the cheetah cheetah. It's probably the ancestor of the cheetah. And last but not least, why did Noah have to punish the chickens? That's my favorite. Because they used foul language. Foul language. Okay, all right, enough funny business. Brett's back there saying, who in the world did we get to talk about the global flood today? I don't know. Uh, let, me, let me begin the more serious part of this by saying, hey, this is probably, it's got to be a top two or three most criticized portion of the Bible. Okay, so when you think about Christian apologetics and Christian evidences, when you think about providing evidence for what we believe and answering questions that people have, people have a lot of questions about creation, they have a lot of questions about the flood, and about who Jesus is, and I would say, you know, whether or not He is God, whether or not He uh, died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later, those are probably three of the top uh, criticized portions of the Bible. You might disagree with me, but I would say the flood is right up there. In fact, the flood might be made fun of more than any other portion of Scripture. Famous... Um, Agnostic Robert Ingersoll back in the 19th century wrote a book, Some Mistakes of Moses. And he said volumes might be written upon the infinite absurdity of this most incredible, wicked, and foolish of all fables contained in that repository of the impossible called the Bible. Well, he didn't like the Bible too much, did he? Mm -hmm. To me, it is a matter of amazement that it ever was for a moment believed by any intelligent human being. Imagine sitting in a high school or college class and your professor just says, you all are ridiculous. They might even use that S word that, you know, we didn't let our kids say when they were at the house, you know, stupid. They might call you that though because you believe that there is a God, that the Bible is the Word of God, and that the Bible says there was a flood. Douglas, I have a fun name to pronounce, Fatuma, uh, in his book Science on Trial said, can you believe that any grown man or woman with the slightest knowledge of biology, geology, physics, or any science at all, not to speak of plain and simple common sense, can conceivably believe this, referring to the flood. Now here, you know, stop for just a moment here, let me just say this, just remember, please remember, now and the rest of your days, is that just because people make fun of something 
just because they criticize something, just because, quote unquote, everybody believes it, or they want you to think that everybody believes that the flood story is ridiculous and should not be believed, doesn't make them right. Okay? That is a logical fallacy of appealing to the majority, which doesn't mean it's appealing to truth. Dennis McKenzie has argued that there is, at least he used to argue, he doesn't anymore because he's now passed from this life, but in his magazine or journal, Biblical Errancy, that's the idea of the Bible having errors, he said uh, that there's a large number of contradictions between Bible verses with respect to what occurred in Genesis 6-9. You can see where the quotation ends and begins here. He also alleged there exists a, quote, great number of difficulties, impossibilities, and unanswered questions accompanying the biblical account of the flood. I will say that there are a good number of questions about the Bible in general that I don't know the answers to. Uh, mainly because God didn't tell us all the answers to every question that we have. Do you realize that the first approximate 2,000 years of human history, there's about 11 chapters in, in Scripture? And there's, that's, that's not a whole lot of material. You know, for the, and we don't have to know everything that went on the first couple of thousand years, but what we can know is what God revealed. And if there is a God, an all-knowing, much smarter than, than you or me, all-knowing, all-powerful God who can make sure that His Word was recorded and preserved for us today, then that God could communicate to us what He wanted us to know. And by the way, there is more in Scripture about the flood than anything else in the first 2,000 years of human history, even more than about creation. Hugh Ross, who is, some might call him just, call him just an old earther, some might refer to him as a theistic evolutionist, others a little more fancy term might refer to him as kind of a progress, progressive creationist. In a lecture he gave a few years ago on the flood, he said this, which just kind of blows my mind, but he stated this, and I don't say this with un any unkindness, I'm just, just kind of baffles me. He said, I, I kind of read through the text referring to Genesis uh, 6-9, through and it seemed obvious to me that it had to be a local flood. Y'all read Genesis 6 through 9 in a while? Not a global flood, he said, and I was shocked to discover that there are all these Christians, and even Christian scholars, that held to a global flood. And I wanted to figure out, you know, how did this happen? You know, how did people get off track like this? So he would consider what I believe today and what I'm teaching today to be off track. I, I personally, when I talk about the flood, and I don't talk about it a lot, but occasionally, I like to begin with the fact that, hey, we're, we're talking about a supernatural creator who caused a flood, a worldwide flood to happen. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself here because we're going to look at some things that indicate it was a worldwide global flood. So I'm not trying to use circular reasoning here. But I do think that, that it's so important for Christians who believe that there is a supernatural Creator who gave us His supernatural Word that we learn of these global flood and that we don't just cast aside the idea of, of miracles in general. Listen, it's, it's logical to believe that if there is a supernatural being and a supernatural creator, that that supernatural creator could cause 
a flood and during that time period there be various miracles, supernatural miracles that would occur. Skeptics, they consider any mention of the miraculous in connection with the flood as kind of a weak defense, but the fact is God worked various miracles during the flood. I was reading Dennis McKenzie's, one of his books several years ago. He had a chapter on there, in there about just scientific errors in the Bible. And he mentioned a few specific things that uh, needed to be, I think, explained. And we have some writings on that on our, our website. However, most of his scientific errors in the Bible were just, well, the Bible says that, that that miracle occurred and that someone was raised from the dead and someone had his eyesight uh, restored or was given vision, having never had it before, etc., etc. And so he was just saying they're scientific problems because the Bible refers to various miracles. Now the Bible is not full of miracles, but there are a number of miracles recorded in the Bible. And the miracles that are recorded, you will see, they had purpose. You know the Apostle Paul? He had some kind of thorn in the flesh, some something that bothered him, that was hard on him, and he pleaded with the Lord three times that he wouldn't have to have it anymore, and God said, you remember what He said? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Notice that Saul or Paul did not and could not miraculously heal himself because that wasn't the purpose of miracles. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people, they, they uh, ridicule the idea of biblical miracles, but again, logically speaking, if there is a supernatural being, you know, it's, it's almost like saying, maybe it's not equivalent, but maybe kind of a comparison. If there is a natural being, then a natural being can do natural things, right? I mean, can you kick a soccer ball? Can you throw a baseball? Can you blow air into a trumpet and make beautiful, or maybe not so beautiful, music? You know, natural people do natural things. Well, God's not natural. He's supernatural. So can a supernatural God do supernatural things? By definition, logically speaking, if there is such a God, He could. Just as God worked miracles prior to the flood, creating the universe and everything in it. I mean, we just read that a few chapters earlier. If God could create a universe out of nothing, then why could He not flood the world totally and then make it, whether supernaturally or in His uh, providential care of the universe, cause that water to dissipate, to go down, to, as He made a great wind to go over the earth, to do something with it so that the waters are not all over the earth today. Could that same God do such a little... If he, if he could if he could create the universe out of nothing, surely He could do that. Furthermore, just a couple of chapters later, you see where He miraculously confused languages. I mean, listen, have any of you ever awakened one morning and all of a sudden you're just speaking languages that you've never studied? I mean, your, your parents would be pretty... Um, the word that comes to mind is wigged out, okay? Y'all probably don't use that phrase anymore. I don't remember when it was popular. <laughs> your parents would be like, what in the world? Speaking in tongues, are you? How did that happen? Well, it would only happen miraculously. And when you have a confusion of language and all of the new languages that people are speaking, well, that was a miraculous event. You have miracles occurring before the flood, after the flood. To say that it wasn't going on during the flood to me is just silly. God directly spoke to Noah and gave him a design for the ark. Listen, I'm thankful for architects. I'm thankful for people who design things. I'm thankful for engineers. 
They go to school for years and years. And I don't want to intimidate you all. I mean, you all may become architects and engineers, but it takes a lot of study and thought. But if, if you could, you know, no, no one is just by chance designing a 100, uh, you know, story tall building having never, you know, studied engineering or architecture or whatever. Noah was able to build a boat, design a boat, build a boat, and I say design it. I'm using you know, this, these terms kind of loosely because we know that God gave him the design. He was able to do this and to build such a, a large barge type boat that survived a global flood. Again, not using circular reason. We're going to get to that here in just a moment. I'm telling you, these designs, the fact that Noah was able to do this, Genesis chapter 6 is evidence of a of a, the miraculous occurring. God calls, caused animals that fly in the air and that are on the land, aerial and terrestrial animals of all kinds to come to Noah. Of all kinds. I live at 102 Brittany Court, Potumka, Alabama, 36093. That's my zip code. You know, sometimes I see deer around my house. I saw a raccoon in the middle of the day one time coming up by my porch. Now, if you see raccoons in the middle of the day running around your house, you better get away from them because they're probably almost surely rabid, okay? I've seen a snake. In fact, I found a snake one time in my kitchen. No one was home except me. I was a scaredy cat. I was like, what in the, how did this snake get in my kitchen? I've seen snakes. I've seen all sorts of birds. I've seen bats. I love, we have some muscadine vines. They're like grapes, but they have seeds in them. We really like to eat them down south. And, and we had some, some that were not so good, and so I was just kind of throwing them around. And it was about uh, 6 o'clock in the evening, maybe 7. It was just starting to get dark. And I could throw them up in the air, and you know what would come and swoop by them and just kind of check them out? Bats. You know, I've seen bats at my house. In fact, my wife and I are convinced that we saw a cougar or a mountain lion several years ago, though a lot of people in Alabama think we're crazy for saying that. We just, we both thought we saw it across the road. Of course, I'm thinking if there's cougars and mountain lions in Florida and Texas and Colorado and other places, could they not be in Alabama? We're just told, like, no, they don't cross the line. <laughs> I don't know. Here's my thought. My, what we all know, though, is this. Listen, if I had a couple of bears come up in my yard and then a couple of lions and they just camped out in my backyard, my dog would go crazy, number one. Uh, and then if I had, uh, let's just say, some, some other unique birds that aren't from anywhere around where I live, and then there were just hundreds of these animals. And they stayed there. You know, everybody, it, that would be on world news tonight, I'm telling you. Because everyone one would under, understand that's not, that something's not normal about this. It was a, an event that had a number of miracles involved. God miraculously flooded the earth. He opened the windows of heaven and all the fountains of the deep were broken up. Yes, this was serious geological activity, but it certainly seems to be worldwide geologic activity. The fountains of the deep were uh, broken up. That happened at the same time all over the world never happened before has not happened since sounds like it was miraculous furthermore you can read where the psalmist said in Psalm 104 verses 6 to 8 I believe Jeff has either already lectured on this or is about to you covered it with the deep as with a garment the waters were standing above the mountains at your rebuke they fled does that sound miraculous to you at the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place which you established 
for them. God. And so let's not overlook the fact and not be ashamed of the fact that we serve a, a supernatural God, a creator, a sustainer of life that the Hebrews writer says is Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 upholding the world right now. That He continues to uphold it. John Whitcomb and Henry Moore said in their classic The Genesis Flood book back from many years ago before I was even born but still around. And that is his, their book is still around. Okay? One cannot have any kind of Genesis flood without acknowledging the presence of supernatural powers. And so to quote Dennis McKenzie again, certain difficulties and possibilities and unanswered questions accompanying the biblical account of the flood may be explained sufficiently simply by acknowledging various supernatural acts of God. But Christians do not have to, as one local flood individual Bernard Graham said, we don't have to appeal to an endless supplying of miracles to make a universal flood feasible. In truth, there are many, many of the alleged problems and proposed absurdities involving Noah and the flood are logically explained by an honest and serious study of Scripture, of science, and history. And if I don't get to everything uh, in the rest of this lecture, just know that you can visit apologeticspress.org, our website. You can check out Jeff's book on this subject matter, and you can read a whole lot more about it. I don't know how often you read the word or say the word hyperbole. It's kind of a fun word to say, but it just is referring to exaggeration. Is the flood account just a high water hyperbole, an exaggerated story? All the mountains were covered, all the high hills were covered, uh, you know, all the creatures outside of the ark and all the people outside of the ark died? Or is it a clear-cut cataclysm? Is it some kind of worldwide catastrophe? You know, just as hyperbole or exaggeration is common in our culture, it was common in Bible times. In fact, turn to the book of Psalms, which we're studying this week, right? Look at Psalm 6 and notice the psalmist, David here, groaning, and he says in Psalm 6, 6, and you tell me this, whether or not this is hyperbole or whether this is literal language. Psalm 6, verse 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed, I'm reading from the New King James, swim. You ever made your bed swim before? I make my bed swim. You know, is the psalmist in agony? Is he weeping? Is he mournful? Yes. Is he crying tears? Sure seems to be so. Do you think that he's crying so much that his bed is starting to swim? No, this is intended exaggeration. I put another verse up here, and some could disagree with me, and that's fine. I, I, I wouldn't even say it's one that I'm 100% sure that there is you know, exaggeration, though there is a, a uh, not-so-literal element to it. It's a great verse where the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel that's been preached, and he says by the time he wrote Colossians to the brethren at Colossae, chapter 1, verse 23, that it was preached to every creature under heaven. You might be reading a different translation that says something like, in all creation. Has the gospel gone out to all the world? Has it literally been preached to every creature? 
if that's the best translation, every creature? Well, obviously, he's not talking about turtles and squirrels. He's not even talking about babies, like human babies. He's not talking about the mentally ill. So we already have, you know, we hone in a little bit with more specificity here. But it may also be, it, God, who can make all things happen, could surely have the gospel preached in all four corners of the earth. Which, by the way, that's figurative language, language right? Four corners of this globe. God could certainly do that if that was His choice. It seems to me that Paul may just be using here some hyperboles. He's talking about the gospel has been preached to, all, to, the, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And maybe he was referring to all the known world at that time. Or maybe he was referring to all over the earth. My point is there is some kind of non-literal element to this anyway if we are to understand this to mean creatures in general. Sometimes a biblical statement or account is hyperbolic or exaggerated with intention. But then sometimes it's wrongfully interpreted as such. Many have unjustifiably concluded that all of the statements in Genesis 6-9 that could have could be interpreted literally, well, it must be not so literal like all the high hills being covered and it must be understood in an exaggerated sense. The Genesis flood was supposedly just a localized deluge and not a worldwide flood. But you know, as you read through Genesis 6, and I'm going to take the time just real quickly to read a few verses for you, you see that there's not just, you know, it's not just the occasional verse. It is repeatedly, if you read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, you're going to see where, and I have, I think, a lot of the pertinent verses written up here. If you want to write these down, you're welcome to and read these later. But you're going to see it is Genesis chapter 6. In verse 7, from the face of the earth, he said, I will destroy man. From the face of, not just from the face of a part of the earth, but from the earth. Chapter 6 and verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Verse 17, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh. You get to uh, chapter. 6 verses 19 and 20, you have even more things said. Every living thing, all flesh, again verse 20, every creeping thing after its kind, two of every kind will come to you. And then uh, you have the end of Genesis chapter 7. I'm going to take the time to read this because I think it's important. Chapter 7 verses 19 through 24. All the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the, the mountains were covered and all flesh, this is chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 21, and all flesh died that moved, beast, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life, all that was. It's almost, you're, you're reading this, and again, this is Holy Spirit-inspired text, and I don't mean to be irreverent here, but just to say, you know, if you're reading this, you, you could almost be like, okay, I, I get it, right? Like, okay, I, I, but it, I, I wonder if in God's infinite knowledge, if He knew that there were going to be some people who tried to make this uh, mean something that it doesn't mean, tried to fictionalize it or make it all figurative, that He's just going to say, listen, I'm going to do 
I'm just going, going to go all out and I'm just going to continue. So he destroyed all living things, verse 23. Into verse 23, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Whew. I mean, all, every, everyone, all the, the animals. Chapter 8, let's look at verse 21. He said, And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And then you have a few more verses there in chapter 9, verse 11. Never again shall all flesh be cut off. Verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah. From these the whole earth was populated. You know, I'm not saying this is the best question to ask, but it, it, it is a very, it seems to me, a relevant one. And that is, what else could the Holy Spirit have done to tell us this was a global flood than what He did? I'm not saying you can't think of maybe something else. I'm just saying it seems like He went all out to say, listen, don't, don't misunderstand this. Please understand what I am saying. The burden of proof is on those who take a figurative interpretation of the oft-repeated universal language in this passage. I'm going to skip Dr. Uh, excuse me, D.R. Dungan's quote here. But basically, he is saying that you interpret language as if it is literal unless there is something in the context that says, that's showing you that it is figured. The sense of the context will indicate, as before said, nothing should be regarded as figurative unless such a demand is made by the meaning of the immediate context or by the evident meaning of the passage as a whole. And I would contend we apply this uh, appropriate uh, acknowledgement and realization of interpretation to Genesis 6-9, through 9, we're going to come with the proper understanding that this is a literal global flood. In truth, the Noahic flood should no more be interpreted hyperbolically as a localized flood than the days of creation should be understood figuratively as long ages of evolutionary time. By the way, many, I, I wonder if it's nearly, if, if, if I could see a, a number of all those who say they believe the Bible, but they don't believe in a global flood, they are, I, the, the number would probably be up in the 90% of those same individuals saying they believe the Bible, but they also believe that days of creation or that Genesis 1 and 2, that it was either, that it's either mythical or the days are forever long, billions of years, so we could fit evolution in there. Those ideas go hand in hand. Neither the immediate nor remote context demands such interpretation. In fact, the very opposite is true. I'm going to try to get through this and then move on to the second point and probably the last point. But real quickly, the context demands, it demands a universal cataclysmic interpretation. I mean, why build an ark if the flood was not universal? Why not just instruct Noah and his family to move a few hundred or maybe a thousand miles away? I, mean, I don't know that we can tell exactly how long Noah took to build the ark. It does seem like it was decades. Why spend all that time if you could have just moved to Colorado? Actually, don't move to Colorado because Colorado has some indication that it was once flooded, right? And of course, the whole world does, but maybe you couldn't really move anywhere. But if you thought it was going to be a local flood, just, just move somewhere else. You know, if... if all of the scientists, and it, it was—it it looked like legitimate, 
You know one reason I have a hard time believing in some of the global, excuse me, some of the climate hysteria? You know, the ocean, I'm not saying the oceans aren't rising a little bit. I'm not saying that the temperature might not be rising. But it's amazing to me, all those people, many of those individuals who talk about the oceans rising, they, they don't mind buying oceanfront property, do they? <laughs> and I think that there are a lot of people who, you know, if, if it was going to be just a, a local flood, well, yeah, listen, if I thought my property was about to be flooded with water, you know, and the insurance company wasn't going to pay for any damages, then I'd be looking to sell and hopefully be an honest salesman and say, listen, this is what they're saying, but I'm trying to sell to move here because I, I don't want to be covered in water. If it was a local flood, that's what I would do. But isn't that an indication that it wasn't a local flood? Why go through the trouble of taking care of animals for a year on our... You, listen, you might think it sounds fun to take care of animals for a couple of days. Listen, I got one animal at my house. Sometimes I get tired of him. I love him. He's been around. I, 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 you know, I don't love him like I love my wife, but I like him a whole lot. He's fun to have around. I've been around for 13 years. He's a half weenie dog, half Springer's family. We call him a spring weenie. He's not. He doesn't have much spring in him, though. I'm telling you, he's, he's going, he can't. He, he can't even hear the doorbell anymore. But he can smell. He can smell so good. He can track me from one end of the house to the other. I can. I cannot hide from him because he just puts his snout to the ground and he smells me. Maybe that says something about my smell. I don't know. <laughs> but you might think it's fun to take care of an animal for a little while. But you don't want to take care of animals on ark for a year if you don't have to. Why would they do this if it was a local flood? <laughs> Why did no one in his family stay on the ark for more than a year if it was just a local event? <clears throat> Going boating sounds kind of fun. I've never been out in the, you know, been deep sea fishing or anything. I've been on lakes and boats and used to have a jet ski and had a lot of fun with that, but I'm not interested in staying on a boat more than a couple hours. Maybe a few hours. Like I said, I've never been on a cruise. I might like that more than a few days. His family stayed on it for a year. Why if it was just a local flood? Why did God promise never again? This is a, this is a kicker to me. Why do you promise never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth if innumerable local, many localized floods since then have ravaged many places on earth and killed millions of people and animals? But God said He wasn't going to do this. He has the rainbow as the sign of this, and yet there have been many localized floods since then. So I know we've spent the vast majority of our time together looking at the biblical account and text itself and I did that in part because, and I'm not done yet, we're not offering the invitation quite yet. I'm not, 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 not going to offer that today, but it's always open, right? It's the Lord's invitation. But there are so many Christians, it's just become more and more popular to just kind of compromise what we think about this. And yet this is fundamental to biblical teaching. In fact, there are many New Testament, a number of New Testament writers who refer to this. Very quickly, what does, if anything, does science have to say about the flood? Because my guess is most of what you have seen on television, what you've heard from various people, what maybe you've read, is that science doesn't say anything about the flood. Well, I would, I would beg to differ. If there was a global flood, what are some things you might expect to find? What might you expect to find? Let me just ask you this. You go down to the, to the beach and you see water that's, you know, wave action that's, that's happening and water's coming up on the beach and it is going back into the ocean. 
and you sometimes build what? Sand castles. So you have a lot of sand, you have maybe it's beautiful sand like the on down there in the Gulf of Mexico, come down to you know Gulf Shores in Alabama, there's some beautiful sand there on the beach. Sometimes it's not so beautiful. Now I love Texas, but I've been to some beaches in Texas and I'm like, this the sand doesn't look the same as it does in Gulf Shores and Orange Beach and the panhandle of Florida. Again, I love Texas, don't get me wrong there, but there's some different sand, there's different pebbles, there's different rock. You know, there is sedimentary rock all over the world. Now we're not talking about sand per se, but there is something called sand what? Sand sand rock or sand sandstone. And you probably see a whole lot of that out here in Colorado and then going down to, you know, over to Utah and Arizona and New Mexico. You know, when we think about sedimentary rock, we think about sediment that maybe originally had eroded from some other area on earth that then, for whatever reason, might be washed into an, another area and it is deposited and then it compacts and after some time, it doesn't take millions of years, by the way, this compaction, you have more sediment on top, you have more water on top of that, it compacts, it forces the water out so that that compacting begins to basically cement. And so those little sand stones, that little pieces of sand becomes more like well, more like stone that then over time might begin to erode. My point is, and what you can read a lot more at apologeticspress.org, is that there are layers of sedimentary rock that are literally all over the world. Which, by the way, is exactly what you would expect to find if there was a global flood and water that carried sediment all over the world and deposited it with layers that were laid down rapidly that we begin to see today as those rocks begin to erode. Second, if there was a global flood, you would expect that there would be rapid deposition. That is, that, that those layers and all those sediments would have been deposited rapidly. Is there evidence of that? There absolutely is. That there are layers that are laid down as, as uh, I've, I've, I've heard my colleague Jeff refer to this a lot as, as like, like pancakes where it's just one layer on top of another, on top of another, and they're amazingly smooth. That is, evolutionists contend that there's, there are millions of years between various layers of rock. Now, not necessarily, I just have this as a picture, so not necessarily these layers, but going back to, for example, in the Grand Canyon, they would say in different layers, well, there's, there's millions of years in between various layers. But the problem with that interpretation is, if that actually happened, what, what would happen, let's say with this layer right here, if the layer right on top of it was not laid down for millions of years, what would have happened to that layer right under it? That layer would have shown signs of erosion. And it would be very uneven. And you would see just evidence that there was erosion and then it was covered with another layer of rock allegedly millions of years later. That's not what you see. 
what you see is what it appears to be rapid, very quick, one layer, and then another layer, and then another layer, and another layer, and then another layer that had to have been laid down quickly. Thirdly, and this is so interesting to me, I only began learning about it probably, I guess, just a few years ago now, that there are bent sedimentary rocks, layers, in different places around the world. In the Grand Canyon, on mountaintops. In fact, there is a new video that is out called, help me out here, it's called uh, Mountains After the Flood. Is that right? Mountains After the Flood. New video out. Uh, the same people that produced Is Genesis History produced this. And I don't know for sure if it's out for everyone, but I think, I think it's about to be. Um, I've seen it, and it is quite interesting. It's a documentary that is a lot about these bent layers that are amazingly, you know, kind of uniform in the sense that they're not cracked, but they're bent. And Dr. Andrew Snelling took me to this one when I was with him on a trip and showed us how these bending of the layers are evidence of a quick burial and how these layers, what's going to happen to sandstone to, to, if you try to bend it? Let's say you have just, a, just a, some very thin layers of sandstone. What's going to happen if you try to bend that stone? It's going to break, right? But these aren't broken. But they're all bent. That must, be, must mean that they were still in, in a soft state when they were laid down and when the layers on top of it were laid down and layers under it were forcing some of the upheaval causing it to shift and bend while it was still not yet hardened. And then lastly I would say that there is evidence of a worldwide flood because there are polystrate fossils that have been found all over the world. Polystrate meaning many layers where there are fossils that cut through more than uh, several layers of rock that are supposedly laid down over millions of years. What's going to happen to a tree trunk over millions of years of time? It's going to what? It's going to erode. It's going to deteriorate. It's not going to be a tree trunk anymore. It's not going to be there, but it is there. What does that mean? It means that those layers of rock had to have been laid down quickly, like when? Like maybe during a worldwide flood. Thank you so much for your attention today. It's been a pleasure to get to talk with you. If you have any questions, be sure to talk to my chauffeur. His name is Jeff Miller. He can answer all of your questions. I'm actually speaking in the auditorium next, so I need to kind of head over that way.